Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Today, we are in conversation with Robert Thurman. Bob Thurman, who's known in academic circles as Professor Robert A.F. Thurman. Professor Emeritus. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. I retired. You finished your tenure in 2020. Is that right? That's right. Unchained. I'm unchained now. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest is a talented popularizer of the Buddhist teachings and at age 24 was the first Westerner Tibetan Buddhist monk ordained by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Over 50 years now, he and the Dalai Lama have remained close friends. He's a leading worldwide lecturer on Tibetan Buddhism, passionate activist for the plight of the Tibetan people, skilled translator of Buddhist texts, and inspiring writer of popular Buddhist books. Bob served as the Jaitsong Kappa Professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies in the Department of Religion at Columbia University for 30 years until 2020. He's the founder and active president working with his wife, Nina, of Tibet House US and its Menla Retreat and Spa. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and promo promotion of Tibetan culture and of the American Institute of Buddhist Studies, a nonprofit affiliated with the Center for Buddhist Studies at Columbia University and dedicated to the publication of translations of important artistic and scientific Tibetan treatises. A charismatic speaker and author of many books on Tibet, Buddhism, art, politics, and culture, Bob was named by the New York Times the leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism and was awarded the prestigious Padma Shri Award in 2020 for his help in recovering India's ancient Buddhist heritage. Time Magazine chose him as one of the 25 most influential Americans in 1997. Our distinguished guest is the acclaimed translator of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and author of Inner Revolution, among many others. He's also co-author of the book, Man of Peace, the illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. Today, we're excited to have him speaking with us at Banyan Books about his latest book, which is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. Wisdom is Bliss is a joyful exploration into the nature of reality through Buddha's threefold curriculum of super education. To learn more about Bob and his work, 
You can visit his personal website, which is www.bobthurman.com. Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for our distinguished guest, Mr. Robert Thurman. Thank you, Ross. That's really kind of you and uh, too kind, actually. <laughs> I'm really just an old fogey as my, <laughs> my, my, my five children, any of them will be happy to tell you. Well, and, we value our elders. My grandchildren a little more, a little more affectionate normally, but the children, they, they have to keep me straight by teasing me a lot. So, um, so that's great. So should, are you going to ask me questions, things, or shall I, I just have some questions for you? Yeah, you do. Okay. Start with you. You make it very clear that, I mean, this is a traditional Buddhist teaching. You're starting with the very foundations of Buddhism, the four noble truths and the eightfold path, but you make it really clear that this is about, this is fun. This can be a fun, light, joyful process as we yes. move on the path to enlightenment. Can you tell us why that approach is important? Well, because um, I'm following uh, my teacher, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, that uh, we should not be trying to convert people to Buddhism. And I don't try to do that. I taught for 50 years actually in academia at Amherst College before Columbia. And um, and at Harvard and other places, and um, I uh, in, in academia you don't proselytize, you know, which is actually really a great thing, so that you therefore can teach the educational methods of how to be a better person that all of the religions have, um, but um, uh, which don't require adopting a particular credo or becoming exclusivist in some way. You know, the educational aspects are just to improve yourself as a person. And actually, in the case of Buddhism, that's pretty much all that is. In, the, in other words, and that's why I called the Four Noble Truths, I called them the friendly, fun facts. Instead of the Four Noble Truths, just for the purposes of the way to present it to the general public. You know, the, they were called noble by Buddha to deconstruct the caste system that this sort of hierarchical caste system was not the way of being noble. The way to be noble meaning altruistic because a good noble is supposed to have noblesse oblige, as this French say, meaning they really consider the needs and the perspectives of, their, of the people who depend on them, their subjects, so to speak. And so he was saying that noble is not just being born in an upper class or caste, but it is having a truly altruistic realization which a certain stage of meditation and understanding will bring you to where you are truly empathetic. So therefore you feel what other people feel and therefore you do take their perspective into automatically, just like, like you take your own hands perspective into account and you don't put it on hot pots on the stove without a pot holder because it will hurt it because you feel the pain, you know? So it's not only Bill Clinton who feels our pain, it is a noble person who has a true empathy and therefore they don't cause you pain when they feel your pain, when they really feel your pain, they don't cause it. So, so that's what the friend, so therefore I put that as friendly because the person who's your real friend is the one who sees it your way. You know, they understand how you see it. They may see it their own way too, but they include your way in whatever they do. Uh, ethics also is what they call other regarding and, um, 
So that's friendly. So that's that's really what it means. We don't we supposedly in the West don't have a class system, ha ha, and we don't have a caste system, but uh, we do. People who have are rich think they are something special and higher, and they are not necessarily friendly to people who are poor. But a person who is a little enlightened, whether rich or poor, they will be friendly to other people because they feel what they feel, and they won't be harmful. So that's friendly. And then changing truth to fact for the purposes of my of my way of doing it at the end of 60 plus years of, of trying to understand Buddha's teaching. Uh, the fact issue is good because it's really reality. It's not a matter of a proposition, a dogma that you have to believe in, you know? So the four friendly facts are the fact that if you maintain your egocentric, rigid, self-absolutizing, way of being, everything will be difficult for you and you'll be under stress all the time and suffer. And even pleasures will be stifled by your wanting more of them while you're even experiencing them. So you will never appreciate them and they'll see suffering of change, we call it. So, and that's a fun fact because it releases you from the idea that, oh, I should be having more pleasure because you realize, well, as long as I'm just focused on my own input, you know, then that means I won't be, it'll never be satisfying to me. So that gives you, that releases you from feeling you're supposed to be having fun when you're really not, you know, and you, then you have to try to pretend that it's very tiresome. So it's a fun fact. Second fun fact is there's a reason, a cause of why you have the symptom of always feeling stressed out. And uh, that cause is that you're exaggerating your sense of self. It isn't that you don't have a self. Buddhism is often misunderstood by people thinking that Buddha said you don't have a self and then people think, well, that means I don't exist. But Buddha never said that nobody exists. Well, sometimes he did. Sometimes he said nothing, everybody doesn't exist. No, well, actually nothing actually doesn't exist, which is I'm good not sure. I understand. to know. But every other thing, yes, my watch is sometimes confused when I talk. So it keeps me, <laughs> keeps me calm. That's okay, Siri, you can relax. And, so the point is, second noble truth is fun because you can understand why you're stressed because it has a cause, which is a distorted sense of self, exaggerated sense. I think I'm absolute, I'm really the center of the world and it's really it never changes and it's a real me and it's a real Bob Thurman, blah, blah, blah. And that means nobody else agrees with me in the whole world. <laughs> not only don't they not agree, each one, or lots of them think they're the real thing. So they're mad at me to start with that. I don't agree that they're the main thing. You know, occasionally when we're in love, we sort of think the other one is the most greatest thing in the world. And we mutually support our mutual delusions. You know, when we fall in love for a short time for honeymoon or whatever. But um, actually the rest of the world is against and, and the, everybody else hates Romeo and Juliet. So that's really bad. <laughs> you know, because they're enjoying their delusion for change. But anyway, the point is that there's a cause. And once there's a cause, like in a medical thing, once you know the reason why you have a symptom of difficulties and unpleasantness and pain, disagreeable situation, you know the cause, you can remedy that cause. And the prognosis Buddha gives us is so good. And again, he says, believing in it is not going to achieve it for us. We have to take the medicine. We have to learn. We have to experience nirvana. And we can do that. 
And so it's a, there's a discipline and a meditation and a learning, learning before meditation, learning during meditation, learning after meditation. So the meditation goes in the right direction. That's really important. People in the West think it's just meditating, but it isn't. It's learning with meditation. And meditation is just a day of deepening the learning, actually. And, um, and, but the prognosis is it's possible to live on this planet in total bliss all the time and to be a source of that bliss relief of the offering opportunity and the open door to bliss to others. You can't actually make them have bliss, but you because they'll resist anything that you try to make anybody do, they always will resist. But you can encourage them to open their mind where they can find bliss in themselves. And you understand very skillfully how to do that when you're free of bliss. And so then the fourth noble truth is the therapy. Again, not such something to be believed in, no, or the friendly fact. The fourth one is that there's these eight ways of educating yourself in your way of relating to the world and to others in sort of ethical education. There's a way of changing how you do that where you only have positive relations. Then there's a way of educating your mind where you can, you can deconstruct the negative impulses in your mind and you can replace them by positive orientations. And then there is your learning the nature of the world and reality which Buddha encouraged that we are capable of understanding, which is why I was originally attracted to it. I wasn't really looking for a religion. I wasn't that religious. I was looking for someone who would encourage me to try to understand the world. And the, you know, the Western religious people that I knew, they said, oh, you can't understand. You just have to believe something that doesn't make sense to you. You know, blind faith, you know, and that, that, that why should I do that? And why are you telling me to do that when you're saying you don't understand the world? How can you then tell me I have to do this and such? And you're, it's one ignorant telling another ignorant. Well, you know, I know I'm ignorant, but I think I could understand if I really work in the right way. Then the science people tell you, well, yeah, you can understand this gene or that atom or this thing. But the more you understand about it, then there'll be all this dark things that you won't understand. There'll be more things that you don't. So they both tell you you can't understand anything. So, but how do they know that since they don't understand anything? You know, just little bits of things, you know. That's what, I, that was my rebelling attitude, you know, when I was 65 years ago when I was rebelling. And uh, maybe 70, maybe sort of 10 or 11, I don't know, mm -hmm. or even younger. And uh, yeah, I used to, by the way, I always used to use the concept of infinity. When the, when the pastor would try to get after me that you have to believe, Bob, you got to believe. I would say, why should I have to believe? And besides, you don't know yourself. You're saying to me, you just believe something that you don't know why. And why should I join you in that when you don't know what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't either, I admit, but I think I can be able to. And why don't you encourage me to learn? Well, you can learn other things, but the big thing, you just have to believe. So that I, I started, I was against that since I was six. Which brings seven. up a a good point that you you come back to this often through the book how buddhism is is a super education that's right it's scientific and it's about getting in touch with reality right you, you, and i use the term super education because western people are most of them have had higher education already and then they still are mad and they're still upset and they still don't know what's going on, although they may have acquired skills. But as the Dalai Lama put it once when he received an honorary degree from Columbia University, 
he said, he said, I love it. It's the most important thing in the world is education. Everyone needs to be ed to educate themselves and to become educated. So schools are really critical. But I worry about your education because all you do is produce a clever brain. And actually, you don't have any way of educating the good heart. You don't do that. And, and, but you should, and why don't you? Because a clever brain is, is, is dangerous because you, this person with a clever brain can manipulate others. And also they're gonna do maybe, you know, by doing that, they'll become more alienated from the others and they'll have an unhappy life and they maybe cause harm as well. But a person with a good heart will help others and they'll be beloved by others and they'll have a wonderful life. And then with a clever brain, they can also do it really more effectively. So it's good you're doing the brain, but get into the heart, guys, please. So all the Columbia faculties and trustees and everybody, oh, that's so great. We agree, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't change the curriculum one ounce. <laughs> so I was chained to that for 30 years. And of course, the brain is good. And you can a little bit by example or a little bit by reading some good literature and having some good historical examples, People can be inspired. Maybe they can change the heart or they'll want to be good. And some people, of course, come, they learn from mom how to be good or they did so in former life. So they're, they're going to be okay. But point is, we don't, we're not allowed to teach people to have a good heart uh, because that would be somehow too religious, you know, in secular education, people think. And uh, it's not necessarily religious. You could say it would be spiritual and education should be spiritual in the sense that it should teach people to be kind, to be loving, to be friendly and happy. And that way people will be good. So anyway, that's the thing. And then the other thing that is a friendly fun fact, which is part of the third noble truth, which is emphasizing the third. People who teach Buddhism as Buddhism, like forming a Buddhist group or something, they tend to emphasize the first friendly fact. In other words, that you're gonna suffer inevitably, if you're too self-centered, basically. So it's the same thing Jesus said, everybody said. But the, the question is, what is the method of how to get rid of that and to diminish that and how to increase the altruism as a sort of, you know, systemic process, you know? That's the key. Who who does that better? And, and different education systems do it worse and different ones do it better, you know? And um, the great founders, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, Lao Tzu, whoever they were all over the world, Moses, you know, Rabbi Hillel, they all did great things individually, but but the, the institutions are not, some of them not so good, including the Buddhist ones. They just say, I believe in Buddha, and then they don't tell you how to do that, you know, how to really develop a strong confidence about the nature of the world. So the third noble truth is that what I want to emphasize, which is the prognosis. We all have a right, we all have an opportunity, we all have the ability to free ourselves from suffering. And once we do, we will really want to free others from suffering and we'll be able to do so more effectively, help them. And we can't force them, of course. As you know, the famous Frenchman sitting in the cafe on the West Bank, uh, you know, you know, smoking Golois, chain smoking Golois and drinking, drinking brandy and being existentialist. You know, like poor my friend Matthew Ricard, you know, poor like great Buddhist monk and teacher Matthew Ricard, he writes books this thick on how they should give up suffering and be more happy. And they resist because they say they like their suffering. 
you know, <laughs> and they embrace it, and uh, they really got to And he's he's written, he's written he's so kind to them. He wrote a book that thick, how to be happy, you know, and um, and but and I don't know if they really read them. They should, but they but some of them do, I think, and eventually they will probably more of them will read them. But uh, I want them to, I want people to be encouraged, even if they can't learn right away how to be happy, but gradually, gradually, that the final goal is to be happy, that reality is happy, that they're going to, the default reality, if all, when, when they die, they're going to be embraced by nirvana, not by some horrible monster, because the life force is the, is the basic foundation let's say of life you know it is the life force and it is nirvana and it is great adequate to deal with everything and it's not a dark nothing or it's not hell or it's not it, you know so they shouldn't be afraid and so people should operate from a point of view of feeling inspired that they can become happy and that they can do everything you know you know obama blew everybody's mind by winning in 08 you know, when when he was not as a, as a guy with a Muslim name, only seven years after nine eleven and all the anti-Islamist you know crusade that was going on, popular level, Barack Hussein. I mean, come on, and also he's half black. He's not really a black. He's just as white as he's black. He's half half. You know, he was a half half. You know, boundary person, but he won by by insisting all the good things. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Then he sort of gradually dribbled away because once he got in there, he kept saying, well, gee whiz, we can't much, little, but not enough, you know, because he kind of, he was not really prepared for the onslaught, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, bless his heart, of course. He's still helping out and he's doing good things. And he will always, like Jimmy Carter, he'll go on until he's 150, I hope. But the point is that, yes, we can. We all sense inside, especially when we're young. Yes, we can. We can, we can join Greta Thunberg. We can stop this climate nonsense, you know. Did you know, you may not know this, but I would like everyone to know. I don't harp on it too much in the book. I do a little bit under right livelihood and under realistic livelihood, rather, which I prefer to call it, and realistic ethics. I a little bit harp on it, but not too much. But, but uh, climate change, you know, and, and the fact that we must treat it as an emergency, as it is. And we have to really force the glutton oil barons and the oil uh, addicts to stop it, you know. Because would you know something? All of the climate destroying chemicals in the air, in the atmosphere, put there since 1850 to 2020. 170 years. Half of them have been put in since 2000. That means they are doubling down. So 150 years worth of industrial pollution have been equaled and doubled in 20 years. Wow. And they don't plan to stop. They're fighting like hell right now on Capitol Hill in the US to prevent the real climate change, 3.5 trillion, 3 .5 trillion cut down from 6 trillion cut down from 10 trillion, which it should be, which is 1 trillion a year, you know, over 10 years, that is. And that's not much when you think of the military budget and the other budgets, 1 trillion, $300 trillion 10-year budget in the U.S. government. 10 trillion is a small percentage, 
But climate change is a huge thing. It's the whole planet trashing California, trashing Louisiana, trashing the East Coast with floods. Unbelievable, you know, and ruining the crop system and huge droughts in the West, you know, and forest fires. I mean, it's no joke. It's not, it's not, what, what is 10%? Like 10 out of 300 is what? That's like 3%. Mm-hmm. And those, those, the climate, the, the way the earth and water and the fire and the wind, that's not 3%. That's 40% of life. And so it's not, a, it's not enough, really. So 3.2 trillion is peanuts, actually. Yeah. And they're even trying to stop that because it's so crazy. So it may, then that would mean if they carry on like they did in the last 20 years with the, with the stolen election from Al Gore, they have the stolen election from Hillary, you know, by various hanky pankies, oil industry ruling, coal industry ruling everywhere. By doing that, they're going to again double it by 2030, 2035, and we'll be completely in the soup. So we really have to see, you know, if, if, if anybody who reads my book and they don't get out there and vote and join Greta and, and protest and school strike for climate. Skull strict in Swedish. Skull strict for klimatet. It's very, you know, the Swedish thing. It's so cold up there. You know, they they have to enunciate very strongly. <laughs> you know that in Vancouver. Well, Vancouver is nice and warm compared, you know, to Sweden. Yeah. But but anyway, so that's the thing. So so that's that's all I'm saying is try to be happy. Realize that base reality itself is happiness. Nirvana is happiness, not just freedom from suffering. Also, it is happiness. You know, the Buddha put it in minimalist terms because nobody really believes you if you say, actually, you should be being happy because happiness is the reality of things. They, they, they think, oh, you must be selling snake oil or something. But no, that is really what he discovered. And that's what has kept his movement alive over billions of people over thousands of years. You know? Yes. Bob, you know, there, there's a theme running through this book around education and... Yeah. And I was fascinated reading a bit about the, you know, the classical Indian universities and, and the Tibetan universities mm-hmm. and the super education that underlies their mm-hmm. learning. And also just kind of, there's, there's tied into that. You talk about, there's a section at the end of chapter eight on realistic mindfulness called modern Western chauvinism is a hindrance to scientific success. Yes. I'm wondering if you can comment on our education system, our our sort of Western sort of arrogant worldview, and then relate it to the those classical ancient universities of India. Right, right. Well, West, we have some. It's not wholly arrogant. The Western worldview has a lot of good points. Hmm. You know, there was a kind of arrogance, of course, of being, you know, Abrahamic, but mainly Christian. And that in European, in, in Europe anyway. And the idea there was only we are saved and everybody else is doomed. And that was a big arrogance that we had. And, you know, you know sort, of, sort of a massive tribalism of God is on our side, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, God is absolute reality and absolute power and all this. And um, never mind that he couldn't stop suffering, or, you know, and therefore he must be really unhappy seeing us suffer. But if he's so, if, he, if he's just made us, you know, so they don't, but they don't, they need to be logical, they think. So that was a kind of arrogance. Then in the, in the Western Enlightenment, which we applaud, 
you know, the Buddhist enlightenment applauds the Western enlightenment. Don't think we don't. Because they needed that getting rid of the mind and getting sort of nihilistic and existentialist to get rid of the fear of hell that they were being subjugated by, you know, by the Inquisition and its various forms, you know, and um, that they were sinners and they were all going to go to hell. So to escape from that and to actually let their own common sense loose to observe what was going on around them in the world, they almost needed nihilism, let's say. But then what happened was they didn't, they didn't educate themselves to overcome the absolutist habit pattern in the psyche. So therefore they made nothing into the absolute, you know, and they think nothing is really waiting for them when they die. It's, it's better than hell because it's not painful. It's just anesthetic. But, but it also has the negative side that it makes them reckless because there's no final consequence of whatever you do. Just do whatever you can get away with, you know, in this life. And then there are otherwise, after that, you don't have to worry about it. So we can keep burning coal and oil and just making this, cutting trees and just being destructive to get some immediate benefit, money, and something, you know, you know, immediate, you know, have a trophy wife or something extra when we're croaking or something. And, and, and it won't matter that we harmed our wife and child of original long life, long life or whatever, or whatever, you know, then we can raid another country's resources and it won't matter. We won't have to pay the price. So that's another kind of new kind of arrogance where in the, and that's, that's ruining our education in a way. There's many good things about our liberal education. Even the word is good. Educare from Latin. Educare means, ducare means to lead, like the, the il duce, you know, Italian, you know, to lead. And a means out of. So educare means to lead the wisdom and the ability of the student out of the student and not pretend we just, we put it in there and we indoctrinate them or something and we, you know, and just because they have a diploma, then they should go to, to Wall Street or be elected or something. No, they have to bring out their own wisdom, their own decency, their own insight, their own abilities. And that's good because, because enlightenment is everybody has. In the, they have a Buddha nature. They have an enlightened nature. They have human beings are a magnificent supercomputer walking around on two legs. Slimeware. There's slimeware. It's not hardware. It's slimeware in the brain. And that slimeware is like better than almost any supercomputer. And it's, and it could be that human beings have a brain that's bigger than their head. And I don't mean by being infatuated with themselves. I mean, their subtle body, they can make connections even in the, in the, in the neural net, in the, in the cloud around them that we carry around us that most of us pretend we don't know about. And, you know, the vibes are, are bigger vibes. And also we have a huge brain by connecting with others through language. And we can read that we can read Aristotle and we can read we can read Einstein, you know, who's dead, but he or rather he's in a new life. And I don't think he's at Princeton, but I'm not sure quite where he might be. <laughs> he was happy in Princeton, actually. You know, I once I once met him in Princeton because I had a friend who used to mow his lawn, who lived there, and I was visiting him for a weekend. And we went to mow the lawn to get 25 cents, which could buy us two double scoop ice cream cones that you see it's a long time ago and a plus and five cents left over nice. and we went to mow his lawn but unfortunately he was mowing it himself with a push lawnmower very happily and he had a sprinkler on and he was a bathing suit and a t-shirt 
but the one of those kind where you don't have sleeves, you know, you just have the thing over the shoulders, you know, and he was getting drenched in the walking back and forth, very hot day, you know, late spring, early summer. But he, and he was so happy that hair was all flapping around and the spray was spraying and it was, he was enjoying himself. So, but we were upset because we wanted to, we wanted to have the job so we could get the quarter, so we could get right. the ice cream. Right. So we sat glumly on his front step and watched him do it. And he noticed us. And you know what? He gave us a quarter anyway. <laughs> when he got the ice cream. So he was a nice guy. I really like Einstein. But anyway, point is, I'm sorry, that's a digression. Old people do that. Digression. I'm sorry for the digression. But point is that we, we, uh, uh, we therefore, we, we can share Einstein's brain. His meditation, his thought experiments, he was meditating, you know, Einstein. A thought experiment is a meditation, you know. It's not something Buddha owns, you know. Buddhists don't own meditating. Everybody meditates. The question is, what do they meditate on? Mm -hmm. You know, the oil executive meditates on getting more money and, not, and, and walling off his conscience or her conscience so as not to feel bad about the vast flood that hit, or the, the, the huge hurricane that hit Houston and dropped like gallons of water per minute on top of everybody's head. And that's, oh, that's not our fault. Oh, no, no, that's the, that's, that's something. That's the Trump, that's the dinosaurs that did that, not us, you know. And, that's, and, that, and yet he knows better inside, you know. So he's meditating the wrong meditation, that's all, reinforcing the wrong attitude in his mind. And I think they're all going to come to Jesus eventually, those guys. They will. They, they don't need to come to Buddha. They could come to Jesus. They don't know about coming to Buddha. But they should educate themselves to be more enlightened even on their own terms about the mind and the spirit and the heart and how to be friendly and loving to everybody so that everybody loves them. You know, those billionaires who are trying to run off to Mars to get away from the people that they're not paying decent salary and fringe benefits. <laughs> they're not going to be able to hang on Mars, believe me. They're going to come back. All you can do on Mars is grow potatoes with Matt Damon. That's it. <laughs> it's a solid potato diet. You can't herd cattle on Mars. You can't eat steak. You can't do anything on Mars. <laughs> they really should spend that, that, that money on the living wage and fringe benefits and pensions for the people working in their warehouses. And then, and then, and they should also make a network to empower independent bookstores like Banyan all yes. over the world. Yes. And, then, and because they can do, they sell, they sell everything else. They're practically selling like, I don't know, tractors, condoms, whatever. They don't need to sell only books. So they should build back up the independent bookstore industry. Because yeah. bookstores should be education centers, and they are. They are education centers. I'd just like to take a minute to remind our live audience that Bob's going to be taking your questions. So feel free sure. to take your questions into the Q&A tab. And Jacob, our amazing producer and event coordinator, is okay. going to be those. And, and wisdom is, and, and ask questions, because by asking questions is how you get wisdom. You know, when someone tells you you can't understand the world, you can ask them the question, well, how do you know that since you don't understand it? If you're telling me I can't understand it, that means you think you can't understand it. So if you don't understand it, why are you so authoritatively telling me that I can't understand it? Maybe yeah. you don't, but maybe I can. So that's the kind of question you have to ask to unlearn. You know, one of the things I've come to in old age 
to be more forthright about than when I was chained to the to the academy, and that is that, you know, the authorities in history in Eastern cultures as much as Western cultures. I'm not putting down Western cultures. The Eastern cultures too, they have a vested interest in in intimidating their subjects, whether it's the high priest of whatever religion, including Buddhism in many cases, it's a, or whether it's the king or the prime minister or the president or wh whatever is the, the military political authority. They don't want people to be aware of death so that they're going to insist on having a quality life and they're not going to throw their body away to conquer some oil wells for some tech dictator, you know what I mean? They're not going to do it. They're going to say no to that. And they're not going to work in somebody's factory for peanuts. They're going to demand quality life, you know? So death is very important to be aware of, and they're going to, they're going to be do that. So they want to frighten them. Oh, if you if you don't obey me, then after death, you're going to go to hell. Or, or you know, never mind, you'll be nothing anyway. What do you care? Or, or um, this type of, or I'll torture you if you don't do what I tell you, you know, and you can't understand anything, so just believe, believe me. So uh, all of our thought system, cultural systems tend to suppress our natural good spirits, you know, our natural vim and vigor and the sense of, I'm a human. Hey, humans have, can figure things out. We're smart. We are also kind. We love our moms, you know. We came out of our moms, you know. You know, we can share bodies, therefore. And we can, we, we, we you know, and, and our and mom's body gave milk. She's like, a, she was the original wish-fulfilling cow to me. <laughs> so why should I be mean to anybody, you know. I'm, I'm a male, maybe. I can't give milk. Well, actually, men have given milk in history. In desert island sort of situations here and there. Actually, the male tit can actually produce it. That's I don't so, know how, because it's uh, but only in the supreme, you know, extreme circumstances. It's been wow, known. Wow. There are there are sort you know there are accounts of it, and because uh, we, we still have that nipple there, right? Mm. We're not embarrassed to show it in public. We were around can go around bare chested. <laughs> it's so dry. It's a dry hole. But anyway, <laughs> never mind. But the point is, we're all sweet people like that, humans, and we're very smart. And so I'm not going to work. I'm not going to live and just stare at, at commercials all day and uh, listen to fake lies on on propaganda, you know, radio stations and television stations. I'm going to really. Re I'm going to read beautiful books. I'm going to enjoy things. I'm going to love my family, and I'm going to be nice to my neighbor. And I'm going to listen to Jesus. And I'm going to listen to Buddha. And I'm going to listen to Confucius, and uh, and to to Krishna. I love Krishna. Whatever. Do you know what I mean? That's they don't want people behaving like that because people, who, if, if the mass behaves like that, they won't have armies to go and fight with each other. They won't be able to have extreme social differences. You know, upper caste. You know, that's like worship, like near, nearly like as if they were gods. You know, and they 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 won't. People won't allow it. You know, because they won't be enslaved by them. They're going to demand quality human experience because I have the equipment for it. You know, why do I have a soft hand with very sensitive fingertips? Because I enjoy giving a caress. You know, I like to put my hand in a jacuzzi and feel the warm water flow over it. That's why I don't have scales and claws and go around like jumping on my hamburgers when they're on the hoof. You know what I mean? And eating raw meat like a lion. 
I like to, you know, I'm I'm a gentle human and I'm so smart and so sensitive and I don't want to be pushed around. So they want you to feel that you have that it's right and that wisdom means be resigned to semi-misery. You know, maybe be obedient. The obedience above all they want obedience. But then if you can be nice to some people around in your own class or something, that's good. And by being obedient, in a way, you're being nice to the overlord. So, so they have the, some degree of niceness is in there. But unfortunately, too much of it, then, then you train for the army, then you have to be ruthless and kill grandmothers and bomb babies and be ruthless, you know. So that you have to shut down your own inner human feeling to do that. And they'll train you that way. But they don't believe that you can train someone to be willing to give their life in, out of love, out of compassion. But the few heroes do it here and there, and sheroes do it. But they don't think you can be educated that. But you can, and the super education will train you to be a heroic, or sheroic. Uh, that's a new word I learned from a, a Nicaraguan friend of mine who helps young girls in refugee uh, immigrant situations. Shero. Do you know? It's a, isn't that a nice word instead of heroin? Heroin has sounds like a drug, you know. Yeah. But shiro is really good, don't you like it? I like that. It sounds kind of Japanese almost. Yeah, shiro. It does, well, it does if you make if you roll the R, shiro. But the shiro, we can say shiro in English, but in American <laughs> English. But it's still really great. Anyway, we've so that's, that's great... the thing. Anyway, just so people, do they have some questions, people? Yeah, we've got some great questions in here. So great. We'll okay, let's have get... some. Okay, so uh, here's one from Connor. Who asked okay. now you you touch on this quite a lot in the book what do you think about mixing spiritual paths and philosophies for example practicing bhakti yoga as well as buddhist meditation bhakti yoga is totally great i love it mix them up mix up a storm if it helps but you know the bhakti yoga on the other hand puts all the burden on the god you're being bhakti about do you know what i mean in fact in indian history i think it will come out. It's not yet out, but beginning scholarship is beginning. I think the the Bodhisattva concept, you know, the idea that there are these post-Buddha beings, celestial type beings like angels, who are what we call in Buddhism, in Sanskrit, Indian Buddhism, we call Bodhisattva. Sattva means a hero or a shiro. And those hero shiros were heroes for enlightenment and for the enlightenment of others. And they really cared about the people. So the Vedic gods were not lovey, lover boy gods at all. They were scary. You know, Indra was, one of his names was Shatakratu. It's like Odin, actually. Indra and Odin are, are linguistically cognate Indo-European language. Indian Sanskrit is Indo-European language. And, and um, so he, one of his names was Gramagataka, which means breaker of citadels, you know. So he was like a tribal fierce war god. And the other ones were also fierce. So, they, so the Vedas were a big sacrificial thing where you did rituals and you offered stuff, even animals, whatever, into the fire to pay, appease those gods that you were scared of. Then suddenly bhakti in Hinduism, which they think nowadays in India, people, people in general popularly think, came out of the Vedas. But the, the, the guy mentioned as Krishna in the early Mahabharata and the Vedas, he's not... He's not that friendly. He's killing people. He's a warrior guy. He tells Arjuna to fight and kill and the big Kali Yuga terrible war of the Mahabharata. 
But Krishna, the lover boy, he is loving up the gopis. He loves Radha. He is Krishna. Hi, Jai, Jai, Krishna. Hari, 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 Krishna. Fine. But the point is, there's something new there. The idea that God loves you, not that God is judging you and, and, and bossing you, but that God loves you. And that is a brilliant, wonderful new thing. And there's also Jesus Bhakti, and there should be. And there's Buddha Bhakti, and there should be. And there's Krishna Bhakti, and they're saying the only thing about Bhakti is by itself is Krishna or Shiva or Shakti, some other goddess, you know, Tara, Kali, Durga, whoever it is, you know, in India, or wherever they had, maybe the Gnostics had Mary, you know, the mother goddess. All the burden is on her to solve all the problems in the world. Because you love Krishna, but, you, but Krishna doesn't tell you, you have to be just like me. You have to be a Krishna and you have to save everybody because he's, you're projecting on him the omnipotence of an omnipotent creator, Vishnu, you know. And once you do that, then, then it's up to him. And then you sort of, you just love him. So that, that, that if you do that, only that, and you don't say, well, Krishna, to love you, I have to be loving to other beings. You know, like Jesus said so beautifully, the great bhakti teacher Maharaji, he used to weep when he would mention Jesus. You know, he was into bhakti on Hanuman, bhakti on Krishna, 100%. We have KD all over the place. That's all 100%. Nina Rao, you know, Ramdas, wonderful. Okay. And they naturally, because he taught them, he said, Jesus was the greatest. He said, even though he's bhakti on Krishna, he said Jesus was the greatest because he gave it all to everybody else and he would weep even, you know? And so what that means is you have to not only love Krishna, like bhakti means be devoted, but you have to be like Krishna and love everybody else. That's what it means. And if you don't add that to the bhakti, it a little bit becomes, you know, okay, Krishna loves me, I'm so special. Do you know what I mean? A little bit, you know? You can get into that and you're just depending on Krishna. And, and the problem with just depending on the deity, even if you think he created everything and he's omnipotent, is then who created suffering? How come people are really miserable? And who, did, are you saying that, that, that Krishna in between love bouts with the gopis and things, he, he's allowing suffering to happen, Vishnu? I don't think so. we want to do that. So what it means is, He's, he says, we love you unconditionally. And ultimately, to really get in the flow of that, you should love everybody else unconditionally. Then we're all one. Do you know what I mean? Then you're not just being separate from the guy who's taking care of everybody else or the lady who's taking care of everybody else. You're on their team. You're also taking care of everybody else, if you follow me. That's where, and that's why it's good to combine the super education with the bhakti. You follow me? And I think the great bhaktins always did. And, and in other words, just like, you know, just like Buddhism itself. As a religion, if people are, there's a self-indulgent type of Buddhism that's not really getting people to nirvana, whether they have the name of nirvana or not. They're not getting there because they you can't get to nirvana unless you see it in every other being. So you have to care for them and want to bring them with you just as much as you want to get there yourself. If you just want it for yourself, unfortunately, 
you're only going to get a bubble, one bubble of the ocean. You're going to put yourself in a little bubble in the ocean. Yeah, because why? Because you'll be isolated from the others because you left them out. So you have to, you know, love God with all thy heart and thy neighbor as thyself. That's what Jesus said, you know. So you don't just love God. You love your neighbor too. And the great bhaktis in India also, they were like that too. They, you know, they were such saints, you know, they loved everybody else. And the, the, the love of the Krishna flowed through them to everybody. So they became one with Krishna. But there's a, you can do it where there's no emphasis on that because Krishna loves you. So I, I don't need to do anything else. Just love him. Thank right? you. There's a question from Errol. Errol's wondering, um, he says, you have been one of the pioneers of introducing Buddhism in the West. These many years on, do you feel that transplantation has been successful? In what no. ways could the establishment of Buddhism be improved, or is it on the right track? Uh, well, I think His Holiness the Dalai Lama is on the right track. Because one teaching of Buddhism is don't be a Buddhist to people whose grandmothers are not Buddhists. And that's a great example for all the world religions. Because one thing we have to get rid of in the, in, in the world religious system is of all the world religions is we have to get rid of exclusivism because it's, it's dangerous and it's not what the founders intended. You know, in other words, follow me. You know, Jesus, he said, you only can get to the father through me. But you have to look at the context. He said that when someone told him he shouldn't be healing anybody on Sunday or Sabbath, on the Sabbath rather, Friday, you know, in that case. He shouldn't be healing because the Torah doesn't say don't heal on Saturday, on Saturday on the, don't do anything on, on, the, on the Sabbath. And he said, no, I'm the, I am doing what God wants. So I can heal on Sunday. You only get there through me. He only was contrasting himself with sort of legalism of orthodoxy and saying compassion and love for another and they're they're dying on Sunday they're sick on Sunday on Sabbath so you heal on Sabbath it's just because it's fun makes it more fun for them and, and, and you don't have to follow the letter of the law in other words that's all he meant he didn't mean don't be a Buddhist don't be a Muslim don't be a Christian don't be any other thing he didn't mean that he meant whatever you are that loves everybody and loves your neighbor and turns the other cheek and and it's like you know gives generously and takes your camel to through the eye of the needle, gives your camel, camel through the eye of the needle. He meant that's what you should do. Now, he doesn't mean join some organization in my name that goes around and makes war on other people either. He didn't mean that. He, he, I know a mystic actually, a, a Jesus healer, Italian plumber, who was taught healing by Jesus, Tommy Rosa, a great guy, a really effective healer too. And he he didn't know anything about it. And he went to heaven and joined Jesus's healing school in heaven when he was in a coma after he was run over by a Brinks truck in the Bronx. And then he was being, he loved being with Jesus. It was so great. And he learned so much about healing from Jesus. <laughs> and he was only, he was there for years. He was only there for like six weeks when he was in this coma. And then he had the thought, why is he teaching me to heal a human broken body? But I'm not leaving here. I like hanging out with him. And the minute he had that thought, bam, he woke up from the coma in his broken body where the surgeons didn't know what to do. It was so badly broken. 
pelvis was crushed, skull was in pieces. They thought he was a goner, pretty much. They were asking the mother, should we, should we detach the tubes? And then suddenly he sits up and he says, he says to his mom, take me out of here. They don't know what to do about me, but I know now what to do about me. And then he healed himself. And then he's healed other people since then. A really great guy. But anyway, he told me that Jesus cries when he thinks of crusades and violence being done to other people in his name. He cries. He weeps about it. An exclusivism. Like the, the evangelicals in America, the way they're behaving. You know, they, they want to just kill all Muslims. Type thing. You know, they want kill all whatever, you know, they act like, oh yeah, we're saving some babies, you know, but they don't really, then once they're, once they're born, then they're not giving them any, any welfare payments. Forget it. They can start to death as far as they're concerned. So that's fake. So Jesus cries. He doesn't like that. And uh, my point being, you know, jihad to convert others as the Muslims did in India and in Asia in ancient time. But nowadays, they're a little more cool about it. But they have that idea, like ISIS, you know, still can rise in them. But not from Muhammad. He doesn't like that, I'm sure. And, and Jesus doesn't like crusades. And the Pope telling people in Mumbai that the first millennium, they conquered Europe. Second millennium, Africa and the Americas. Third millennium, they're conquering Asia. What is this conquering crap? Jesus was not a conqueror. He said, let the conqueror try to kill me, and you can't. I'm loving, so I'm rising up. And he can torture me, but puts me in the electric chair. Electric chair was the crucifix. That's what's a Roman electric chair. It's not a holy object. It's, a, it's a, an electric chair. And he couldn't kill me because I'm Mr. Lover. I love all beings, and love is more powerful than your military might. He was telling to emperor of Rome. And it took them a couple hundred years to hear. <laughs> and and, they, and now they're, they're the nice, happy Italians with good pasta. Which they got from <laughs> Tibet, actually. And the pasta came from Tibet. And they, they never paid their royalty to the Tibetans. They stole their intellectual property. But, and they're good fashion. And they're happy. But my, my point is, I forgot what my point was. What was the question? I'm sorry. The, the question was about the, whether it's been a successful transplantation of... of oh, yeah. So the first thing, that's right. So the first transplantation is we're not trying to convert you into Buddhism because we shouldn't, because you should stay with your own culture and everything that we could teach you in terms of meditating, about learning, even about the physics of the mind, physics of the brain and physics of relativity. We know something about relativity from ancient time, actually. And we can even teach you that. And we can, science, we can teach. Buddha was a great scientist, and we can teach that. We can cure the problem, the dogma of materialism that is constraining Western science at this time. All the great things they've done, but they are stuck in that dogma. We can help with that. And, uh, uh, but religious-wise, we're not trying to convert you. And you should quit, quit trying to convert everybody else. And instead, you should learn your own deepest teaching that your own religion is telling you. You should be Jesus, that means. You should be a Jesus person if you're a Christian. You should be Moses if you're a, if you're a Jewish person. You, know, you should be Rabbi Hillel. You should be Maimonides if you're a Jewish person. You should be Muhammad who didn't conquer Mecca. He defended himself when the Meccans were trying to kill him for quite a while when he had, after fleeing to Medina 
But when he became strong enough and met enough people who were his supporters that the Meccans had to give in, they realized they couldn't kill, he walked unarmed into Mecca. And he said, no compulsion in religion. He said, you know, Allah is there. People want to see him. He's a loving God. We're not conquering. I brought the different caliphs of, of Damascus and then of Baghdad. They twisted and they picked out things from what he said when he was defending himself. And then they made that into a thing. Oh, yeah, we can conquer everybody because everyone should be a Muslim or we'll put them to the sword. But that's against what Muhammad wanted and against what Allah wants. So they're, they're off. Of, that's what the Sultan wants always, of course. They want more power. You know? the people who are not going to really be spiritual, they want power. Mm-hmm. And so they'll distort the spiritual teachers thing into power mongery, like, like the Buddhists. The Buddhists just attacked the Tamil Hindus in Sri Lanka in a nasty way. The Burmese Buddhists attacked the Rohingya Muslims who'd been there for generations and they pretended they hadn't and they weren't Burmese. Meanwhile, they totally were Burmese. So Buddhists, but it's harder for Buddhists because Buddha is not God, doesn't pretend he created the world. And even the gods are not omnipotent. Buddhists are not atheists, but they just don't think any one God is omnipotent. They think that gods are nice, and when they when they don't get carried away with themselves, they are quite nice. They tend a little to a little bit prideful, because <laughs> they are gods. So they're pretty cool. Actually, they're pretty beautiful. But point is, they are not omnipotent, so therefore they can't be blamed for every bad thing. So therefore, if if you do bad things, you can blame yourself, and you can try to do good things instead. That's their attitude, mm-hmm. you know about the gods. But they're not atheists, by the way. That's wrong. Some people teach Buddhism are atheists. They are not. They just don't think anybody's the D1 creator. That's the thing. But you don't have to believe that. If you think there's a creator, okay, go for the creator. Then even in the creator traditions, they say, we help those who help themselves. So they, they you still have to do something. And if you really, if you think that the, the greater power is love, God is love, you know, if you think that, then you're on the right track. Yes, yes. Bob, we're just coming to the end of our time, and I, and I thought I would really love for for our audience to hear um, about your work with Tibetan House and and what's coming up next for you. I mean, you've written a lot of books. Are you planning on working on other books? Sure, uh, I am. I have for you. I have five or six unfinished translations of really interesting books. Oh, and. Um, his Holiness asked me 50 years ago to translate all of the Tibetan canon of the books that were originally translated into Tibetan from Sanskrit, from what we, he calls Sanskrit Buddhism in India, which was the Mahayana Buddhism, you know, the universal vehicle, the love and compassion vehicle. You know, the, the Theravada, the dualistic Buddhism about Nirvana being somewhere else, was also compassion and loving oriented, but but it but it didn't make it imperative in the same way, because initially Buddha allowed people to have a certain different view. Buddha was like a Socratic type of teacher; he would teach according to the needs of the individual student. He wasn't a dogmatic fanatic with only one theory, because he because why salvation is is he realized was was accomplished by means of understanding not by means of blind faith. There could be a, a reasonable faith developed by the understanding, of course, and that can be good, but not blind faith is weak. Blind faith is 
is, you know, because it can be shifted onto anything by any demagogue because it's blind. It has no real reason to be that way. And human beings are reasonable about their practical matters. And there's nothing more practical than life and death to deal with in an open, realistic, honest way. And so, so the point is that um, uh, Buddhism wants humans to be happy. They want humans to join enlightenment, not Buddhism. And enlightenment means knowing wh what is real and knowing how to help others learn what is real and being realistic. There's no alternative facts. There's just facts, facts. And in fact, all facts are a little slippery. So when you become enlightened, you, you realize that you have some responsibility about, about finding those facts and by bringing them up to others. And uh, you're not, over, not becoming over fanatic about any facts, in, in a sense, put it that way, but being realistic about it. And, uh, and that way we'll have a good life on this earth. And we'll, at the moment, we will save the planet from fanatics, materialist fanatics, religious fanatics, people who think somehow they don't have to take care of the world around them and the people around them. And they, because they have some overall thing, they're going to go to Mars or something. So therefore they can just squeeze whatever is left out of the planet in order to go and make another one somewhere else, which, which is ridiculous. It's, you know, if they had the iota of common sense and, 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 and listen to their wives, they would never think such thing, you know? <laughs> Not that we're not that actually, actually, once we're taking care of the planet, we might develop technologies where we can be interplanetary, but it wouldn't necessarily be some tin can. It might be mind travel, you know, it might be something more, you know, parapsychology develop, development. And it could be that the aliens who are observing us and hoping we make it and wishing to help us, like the Arcturians and the others, you know, the Hattorians and these other people. Maybe they are here, not on tin cans, you know. Maybe they came through some, in another dimension. That's why they're so quiet and they're so elusive. You know, if they were there in a big tin can, we would see, see like they were in the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We would see them. But these guys can just bloop, bloop, bloop and disappear because they can move into another dimension where you can't see. So time dimension or something. I don't know exactly. Mm -hmm. But maybe, maybe we, if we keep the planet going, and we better get better universities and we build something more out of our good universities and we, we, we cease extremism. Uh, and that's what we are trying to spread in the world is not Buddhism, but as I said, we want to spread Buddhism. Yes. <laughs> means, Buddha means enlightened. So that really means enlightenmentism. And that's the job of liberal and liberating education. And and it can operate in harmony with every religion. So keep your God, you know, keep your goddess, if that's what you have, whatever you want to keep, keep it, but learn better how to worship it and how to live the way that the God tells you to live through Jesus, the great messengers and prophets and children of those deities like Jesus and Mary and, and daughters. They have daughters too. Are you kidding? Just one son, one time? And you have the guy's omnipotent and you, you think you're going to demand that's the case. Who are you to demand of some omnipotent person? They can do what they want. And for sure, any dad wants a daughter. <laughs> as well as us. They, they like the sons too, but they like daughters. They do. And that's nothing 
funky about that. The, the ladies are beautiful and they're wonderful and they're creative. And they're smarter usually than the men, actually. They attain maturity in adolescence, you know, 15, 16, and they're already grown ups. Men get out of adolescence at 60 and 70. <laughs> they're so backward and simplistic, and they don't listen to the girls. So that's really, me too is, me too is enlightenment. So that's Buddhism, me too movement. We're for mm. it. Okay. Um, I, I'm so grateful that you took the time to speak with us today and, and to join the Banyan mm. Books community. I'm so grateful you gave me the time. Thank you. I'm a little old and doddering, you know, so it's, I'm very grateful. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm completely uninhibited to speak the truth to power. And I really think we should be, everyone has to, because, and, and we should not be discouraged that power, power is leading us in the wrong direction. We should realize that's a sign of, of maturing in the planet. The reason is that the people who have power at the moment are the people who are more unhappy and they think they're gonna be happy by getting power. And of course the opposite is the case. They get more miserable even, they go really crazy when they get all the power because they don't know how to uphold that responsibility. Because they, and then they get more isolated and more paranoid and they, get, they do worse and worse. But we would stand it. The happier people, they don't need a lot of power because they, are, they have love and they are beloved because they're nice to people around them, people like them. So they, in a way, they don't need the power. So they've, they kind of have sat back and let the bad guys rise. They're like, that's like the scum rising on the boiling pot, you know, on the, on the, on the carrot soup on the top, you know. And, you know, we can, you can see it clearly. They're all sitting there with their little suits and their goose-stepping and running around with their, 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 their slaves, goose-stepping soldiers, because they're so frightened of them. And they're really frightened of their own soldiers, too. They tend to purge the people around them, their secretaries and everything, because they might rebel, because their secretaries know they're not gods and they're not really powerful. They feel they need power. So, the, but now what we need to do is we need to let happiness have the power and we need to step up and speak to them without being angry with them, being loving. You know, we need, you know, the Donald should be in therapy with his niece. Mary Trump should be the shrink to help Donald realize he lost. <laughs> Instead of suing her, he should be studying with her and lying on a couch and complaining to her. And she might be say, getting him to reinterpret his childhood where he realized and then find love. So he'll finally find true love. He will. That's what he does. All he needs is love. All you need is love. And he, he's down there in Mar-a-Lago, you know, he needs love, but he's not going to get it from Jeffrey Epstein or the new Jeffrey Epstein and by, by, by abusing young girls and things like that. He's going to get it by being nice to regular people. Then they're going to love him. You know, the people who are screaming about him being president, they don't love him. They just think that they feel weak themselves. They don't feel loved themselves. So they think since someone like them could be powerful, that they'll get power and then they'll, be, then they'll make people love them. And they'll go beat them up if they don't love them. But you never get someone to love you by beating them up. 
they might say, okay, I love you, I love you, stop hitting me. But they're not going to love them. They'll put poison, they'll put arsenic in their, in their, in their tur turkey, turkey stuffing sooner or later because they'll hate them because they beat them up. But they don't want to be beaten up. They like, they're just like those poor people. So point is, we, we, we let those people rise, you know, Xi Jinping, Putin, Trump, you know, Zabia, where, where, Bolsonaro, I'll never leave. He's now shouting and screaming himself. He wants a life term. They all want life terms. <laughs> they all want to be lifers. <laughs> life imprisonment in some golden prison. And, but that still wouldn't make them happy. Then they'll want to go to Mars because they'll be so scared of their own bodyguards because eventually those guys always get killed by their own bodyguards because they whip them, you know, then they'll rebel because they know they're very vulnerable, the bodyguards do. Mm -hmm. so, so the point is the happy people, their kids love them, their wives love them, their friends love them, they love all of them. And love means you make them happy, you do whatever makes them happy, they do what makes you happy. That's the way to live. And now on top of that, we have to rise up and speak and vote and run for office. Like Michael Moore said, run for sheriff, run for school board, run for everything. And, uh, and without letting it make us unhappy. It's okay if we lose, but we just get out and speak up, mm -hmm. cheer everybody up. That's all I want to do is cheer everybody up. So thank you for having me. And probably I'm wasting your schedule. Absolutely I not. Stop. Absolutely not. But uh, I love independent bookstore. I'm going to stop buying from Amazon. I'm going to press the button. I'm going to put you on bookmark. Yes, like, please. Like Banyan.com. B-A-N-Y-A-N.com. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, his, his new book is called Wisdom is Bliss. Four friendly fun facts that can change your life. Robert or Bob Thurman. Thank you again for being with us. We're so Thank grateful you, that you joined us. Thank you, Jacob, behind the scenes. Unless you, unless I put you to sleep like I put my kids to sleep. <laughs> I don't think so. I think Jacob is loving this. Oh, good. All right. All the best, guys. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.